So, let's begin. Main man. Main man. Main man. Main man. Main man. Now that's a very interesting story. All the people that were working for Main Man were unusual. We were loud, ugly Americans, basically. Hello, welcome to the second episode in our series exploring the history of one of the most influential and evocative names in rock and roll, Main Man. What do you want to know about Main Man? Because I am the Main Man. I can tell you everything about Main Man. Main Man was a rights management organisation formed by entrepreneur and empresario Tony DeFries that helped to develop the careers of artists including Iggy Pop, Lou Reed, Mick Ronson, Mop the Hoople, Ian Hunter, Mick Ralphs, Dana Gillespie, Amanda Lear, John Mellencamp and David Bowie. Everything that I read, every film that I saw, any bit of theatre, everything went into my mind as being an influence. With behind-the-scenes stories from those who lived and breathed the heady excesses of the period, we're delving into the main man archive to present an evocative walk on the wild side. David would come around in his gigantic lavender platform heels with a, a new hair color every week, and we'd all go off and drink uh, tea at Small's Cafe. In episode one, Tony Zanetta, who was president of the Main Man American Operation, explained how he first came into David Bowie's orbit. At home in New York City, Z picks up his story when the cast of Andy Warhol's play Pork met David in London in August 1971. So we went to the sombrero, and again, Angie was very um, boisterous, shall we say. <laughs> And a lot of fun and very high energy. She's American. David, you'd barely notice. He was sitting in the corner talking to some of us. I remember he was talking to an Asian boy. I, I don't know. Ronson was petrified of Cherry because Cherry was very aggressive also. And you know they weren't used to people like this. Of course, Angela could give as well as you could take. I mean, she was up for it. So we were dancing, carrying on, having a great time. And then at some point, Angela invited me to come to their house the next day. I said, okay, you know, you know I'm fine, blah, 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 it's like for lunch or dinner or whatever. But I didn't know where they lived. So she said that they would send a car, which I thought was a little weird because it was like, well, just give me the address and I'll come. I didn't know that they lived way out in the suburbs. They lived in Beckenham. So at noon, there was a knock on the door and this little lady in a uniform was there. <laughs> I forget her name. And I was like, well, I don't know where, where she's taking me. And I got into the car, and it was really, and I mean, it was one of those moments where I'm like in this car, and I'm like, I don't know where this car is taking me. But I had decided to go. So I went. And they lived in Beckenham, and the house was called Haddon Hall. And it was an old mansion. Kind of impressive. So you walked into this large entry hall, a kind of a two-story entry hall that had a staircase that went up and blah, blah, blah. But that was the whole apartment. They didn't live in the whole house. It was an illusion. They lived basically in the entry hall. They had the staircase with the uh, balcony, but it didn't go anywhere because all the rooms were blocked off up there. But then they had a small kitchen and like a bedroom and a music room. So it was like basically a three-room apartment. The baby was in one room. The baby was 
not even a month old, maybe a month old. David's mother was there, but she never came out. I felt like I was going to visit my aunt and uncle in Kenmore. That was a suburb of Buffalo. I mean, it was the same kind of vibe. It was like I'm going for Sunday lunch to my Uncle Mike and Aunt Lee's because uh, they've changed roles. Angie's actually kind of demure and, you know, offering tea. She's not jumping up and down. and She's sort of being the little wife. And then she's dealing with the mother, whoever's cooking in the other room. And David, David is very, very good one-on-one. Not so good in a crowd unless he wants to be. Again, this is really my first encounter with him. They were very much a couple at that point. They seemed, um, well, very much a couple. I mean, because she was American, I think, even though she did, did not grow up in America, she grew up in Cyprus, and then she went to school in Switzerland. But she had a big energy, and she was very bright. So she provided a lot of energy. And she was very devoted to him at that point. So everything was about him. Everything was, you know, he was the kind of person that automatically opened the door for. So he had a lot of door openers with him and for him. He's a very seductive person. But everything about him is all about his work and his art. So you may think this is going on, but actually that's not what's going on. You know, when he was done with you, he was done. He usually wanted something. I'm not even, and it's not meant to be totally a criticism, a little bit of criticism, but he absorbed things just the way he absorbed books without really reading them cover to cover. He absorbed people too. So, and he would take things from, you know, he wanted to get into you and absorb what it was he thought you had. And once he absorbed it, he wasn't so interested anymore. So we sat and, and, I mean, we sat for hours talking, playing music and, you know, and we had a lot of similar interests. He was really, well, in hindsight, let me comment on what was going on, which I had no idea. I'm like, oh, what's going on here? Because I got like really confusing signals from, I didn't know why they were interested in me. What, what, you know, I was just, again, upstate New York and, but I was Warhol. I didn't know that. I was Warhol to them. I was the door into a whole other world that they wanted to get into. They thought I was the door, but as it turned out, I was the door. I didn't know I was, but I was. (laughs) So, and I'm telling them all about the ridiculous, just like I'm telling you now about John Vaccaro and the Playhouse and this factory and this one and that one. And, And he's telling me all about Lindsay Kemp. Because he had worked in, with Lindsay Kemp and Lindsay Kemp's mime company. And Lindsay Kemp was a very interesting artist. You know, he's basically a mime artist, but he was doing very much the same kinds of things as John Baccaro in New York. He wasn't a pure mime artist. He combined mime and opera and drag and dance and all these things mixed together to create his own form that was pretty outrageous. And could be quite compelling. Not all of it was so great, but a lot of it really was. He, he was quite an incredible artist. And David had worked with him doing mime, and I think he wrote some pieces for some of it. But that was his theatrical background, basically. So we had that in common, and we could talk about that a lot. And then he was pretty educated. I mean, David was self-taught, and David had the ability to sort of, you know, he would read the speed notes, the crash notes. He never read a book from cover to cover, but he could get the essence of a book. So he was very much into Brechtian theater and the idea of Brechtian theater. Basically, he was introducing me to Brechtian theater because that's what Ziggy really was. It was a piece of Brechtian theater where he got on stage and said, 
This is the dumb show, and this is the rock and roll star. This is the show, this is the star. He wasn't that. He portrayed it. He showed it to the audience. That's Brechtian. So he was fascinating because he was a man of ideas. He was truly an artist. Very intelligent, lots of fun, very charming. We had a wonderful afternoon. And then, you know, as people do when they're 24, 25, oh, we're going to go on tour in America. You must come with us. And, oh, it'll be so much fun. And, oh, Z. And, oh, da, da. I don't know if I was Z yet. but And I was like, oh, of course I'll come. Oh, yes, I can't wait. Da, da, da. And I'm like, what the hell? And then I went back to London. And this was getting towards the end of our run. I think I invited them to the last night. I did. And they came. And they came with me to the Hard Rock Cafe. But that wasn't their territory. And he was uncomfortable because he didn't really, you know, he had to be the center of attention. And he was not flamboyant. He did not do anything to demand attention. But he did have the ability. Maybe he hadn't quite perfected it yet. But he had that ability that very, very few people in life have. I just read recently that this is what Marilyn Monroe had. There was like a switch. If he turned the switch... You couldn't take your eyes off of him. If he turned the switch off, you didn't even know he was in the room. He didn't change anything. It was just like a switch. It was something he did. And I soon would become more acquainted with that. Because he was not extroverted at all. He wasn't the kind of person that came into a room and suddenly took over because he was so fascinating conversationally. No. But if he wanted the attention, that switch went on. And the whole room stopped dead. But he was out of his element at the Hard Rock. That wasn't his scene. Yet. <laughs> so I'm going back to New York in a few days. And coincidentally, they're going to go to New York in like another couple of weeks. So, oh, yes, call me. Da, 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 da. So I go back to New York. And they came to New York in September of 1971 to sign with RCA Records. During that afternoon that I was with them in Beckenham, I think it was Tony that he was on the phone. He was took a few calls because there were a lot of things. He's about to get a new record deal. So he, and he told me a little bit about business and what was going on, but, you know, I don't know if I even heard it. But I knew that something was happening. That he was about to sign a record deal. So Tony decided to put him on RCA. RCA corporate, not RCA UK. And here's where I guess I can start introducing you to my dear old friend, Tony DeFries. I mean, Tony DeFries was a brilliant manager, and he's very, very cerebral. And what he had done up to this point that I didn't know yet, I mean, all of this I would learn later, Tony did a kind of deal which he's been criticized for ever since (laughs) because it's so misunderstood. But he took David and he said... I will support you. You don't have to do anything. Don't worry about making money anymore. Don't worry about business anymore. I will do everything. I will give you a space for you to create and to be an artist. You just have to focus on your work. And we will split everything. If we don't succeed, you're not going to lose anything. I'm going to lose. I won't make any money until you succeed. Once you succeed, we will split 50-50 of whatever's left. But until then, don't worry about a thing. Now we're into 1971, going to RCA. So they came to New York. They stayed at the Warwick. Of course, they had to stay at the Warwick because that's where the Beatles had stayed. (laughs) And Tony always stayed at the Warwick for the next year or so. So they came to New York. And 
suddenly I was, you know, I was their friend in New York. Simple as that. <laughs> so everywhere they went, I went. We just hung out. I hung out at the Warwick with them. I went to RCA with them. I was there when they, the literal signing in Dennis Katz's office. Dennis Katz was the A&R guy. I was there. Then that night, RCA gave a dinner at a restaurant called The Ginger Man. It was mostly RCA people, but also, well, Lisa Robinson was kind of the queen of the journalists in New York. But she was married to Richard Robinson, who was also working in A&R at RCA at the time. So Richard and Lisa were there, some RCA people, and Lou Reed, because Lou Reed was an RCA artist. At the time, actually, Richard had produced his first album, Post Velvet Underground. And, you know, Lou was very... I don't know what drugs he was doing then, but Lou, Lou was New York. David was London. Same thing like us porkers in, you know, in London. And Lou had that personality that it's not a, it doesn't really exist in New York anymore, but it did then. And it had to do with drugs. It had to do with speed, like those little pills that Andy would take. But also the drug was speed. All these people, especially around the factory, they took speed. They were very fast-talking, witty, quick with the put-down, vicious, very, very vicious. And Lou was very that. He was scary to me. Very scary. But he and David were kind of coy with each other. So he's still like wisecracking, vicious Lou, but there's kind of a flirtation going on. And David's a little coquettish with him. David couldn't compete on that level for sure. That was not David at all. So I think he was always a little wary of that side of Lou. I certainly was, but I didn't need Lou for anything. So, so we were at the Ginger Man. We had dinner. And then after dinner... I don't think Lou came. Lou was married at that time to Betty. Lou had like this real uh, sweet, blonde, suburban girl that was his wife. Because Lou was, uh, you know, one minute he's gay. Then he goes, he lives with a transsexual for the next few years. But Lou was all over the place, back and forth, da, 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 gay, straight, whatever. Lou and Betty didn't come to Max's with us. But after dinner, we went to Max's Kansas City. And at Max's Kansas City was Danny Fields. And Danny Fields was another, like, New York journalist. And they were all part of a clique that was, they were Max's Kansas City. Danny, Lisa Robinson, Steve Paul, who owned a club called The Scene. There was another journalist named Donald Lyons. There was another one named Lillian Roxon. There was Stephen Gaines. But they were all part of this nucleus of New York writers who did have a certain power. Because if they wrote about you and liked you, they could do a lot for your career. Danny had also managed Iggy. Danny had been a company freak. Danny was one of those hippies that the record companies would hire. And he wasn't that much of a hippie. He was basically a Harvard boy, but very smart Jewish boy from Queens. Also had that personality. (laughs) Super smart. They were all super smart. You have to watch your back constantly. Anyway, Danny was at Max's. We're all there, and everybody's meeting David, and blah, blah, blah. But... Iggy was in New York staying at Danny's. So Danny called Iggy to come over to meet David because he knew that David, whatever had happened on that Mercury promotional tour, David had spoken about Iggy, like on the radio. You know, he was kind of like an Iggy fan and blah, blah, blah. Anyway, he told Iggy to come over, which he did. And they were immediately entranced with Iggy because Iggy could be kind of entertaining and fun and... And he was definitely out to conquer them. <laughs> Everyone's flirting with each other. Absolutely. 
David looks like, um, see, like I said, when I met him at Pork, his hair looked kind of stringy. And, but when he would do it, you know, he could look good like that. So, I mean, his hair was washed and clean and combed. and <laughs> He had long hair parted to the side. It was his natural color, but it kind of was maybe he'd put something in it. It was brown, but kind of golden. He, he would wear a little makeup. Not a lot, but a little. He, had, he would wear these big elephant bells. He had Mary Jane shoes, yellow. He had this cute little, like, chub coat on. He looked good. You know, he looked, he definitely looked like something. But he didn't look like Ziggy Stardust. You know, he looked, he looked good. Kind of enticing. But very, very Veronica Lake, Lauren Bacall. They liked Iggy a lot, and they invited Iggy to come to the Warwick the next day for breakfast. And basically that was it. I mean, from then on, Iggy became part of the tribe and became part of what would become Main Man because they immediately brought Iggy into their orbit. And DeFries basically signed him the next day. To, you know, he was going to represent him for management. But Iggy was getting off of heroin, and he was on methadone. So he was completing his methadone program in Michigan. So he had to go back to Michigan for a few months to complete his methadone program, and then Tony was going to send for him and bring him to England to record. Then they want to go to the factory. <laughs> so I call up the factory and said we wanted to come over, and we did. Now, it's very interesting to me because I did see it a few years ago, but the whole visit to the factory was videotaped. I saw it in Pittsburgh at the Warhol Museum a few years ago, and I was shocked because it's not a way I remember it. <laughs> First of all, in one shot is Andy Warhol, and then I'm in the shot. I played Andy Warhol in Pork. David's in the shot. David played Andy Warhol in Basquiat, the film. And the most famous Warhol impersonator was a guy named Alan Majette. In the 60s, Warhol was booked to do a college tour, speaking tour, him and the superstars and maybe showing movies. But he didn't want to do it. So he sent Alan Majette to be him. And Alan Majette did the tour as Andy Warhol. And no one knew until later that it wasn't Andy Warhol. But Alan Majette was in the shot. And I didn't remember Alan Majette being there. I just thought, this is really weird that four people that played Andy Warhol are in this, just happened to be in this shot. DeFries is in the video. And you, we're kind of walking back and forth. There's shots of DeFries talking to Warhol. And, and the other really interesting thing, now maybe other people would disagree, <laughs> They're talking and blah, blah, blah. And it's not, it didn't go that well. Warhol's kind of quiet. David's kind of quiet. And at one point, David says, could you pull back on the camera? And the guy does. And then David goes into this mime thing. And it wasn't brief. It went on for like 10 minutes. You could see them all rolling their eyes. Nobody said it. I mean, they were polite. But it was, for me, and this is just me, it was like, boy, he was on the edge. You know, he could have gone either way. He's one lucky boy. <laughs> then he went the other way because if he had continued going in that direction, Americans would not have gone for it. We would not be sitting here today talking about David Bowie, I'll tell you that. I mean, it wasn't terrible, but then he brought them the acetate of his song, Andy Warhol, that I think he wrote from the script. I don't know. We'll never know. And Andy did not like it. The lyrics go something like, Andy Warhol looks a scream, da-da-da-da. He didn't say anything, but he kind of blanched a little bit. 
they finally found common ground talking about David's shoes because they were the yellow Mary Janes and Andy had been a shoe illustrator. But it was fun, you know, I mean, David got into the factory. So on that trip, he signed with RCA, he met Andy Warhol, he met Lou Reed, and he met Iggy Pop. And the work began to change. David is seeing danger. I mean, he's definitely seeing something he wants, but, you know, Warhol is, how do you define what that was, what that scene was at that time? But David wants in, but he's seeing it firsthand. What I think, because I've had 50 years to think about this, it goes from pork that we may not have been involved that intimately with the factory, but we were still the same thing. David had a manager, Ken Pitt, who was encouraging him to become like the new gay icon, a lot, Judy Garland. And David was too hip for that, but he, <laughs> but he heard it. <laughs> Did announce at one point, you know, that he was gay. But this was much sexier. This was indeterminate sexuality. It was outrageous. Lou's gay one day, straight there, you don't know what Lou is. The whole factory, the sexuality is a little bit irrelevant. It's not about defining sexuality, but it's about a certain outrageousness. And we in Pork represented that too. We represented a certain kind of energy and we were a little bit more outlaws. So if we were anything, we were like sexual outlaws because we were out there. We were very open and non-apologetic and not at all demure. So I think none of that slipped by. So here he is in the middle of what he wanted to be in the middle of. And seriously, you will hear a change in his music and in his whole persona right then. What a great story and a fascinating piece of rock history when Z introduced David Bowie to Andy Warhol in September 1971. If you hit subscribe, you can go back and listen to episode one of our Main Man podcast, and you can also get the next episode, which will feature another artist who worked with David during his formative years, Dana Gillespie. If you want to have a first-class life, you have to move first-class. And a reminder that the Main Man website has an ever-growing archive of amazing memorabilia that explores the full history of Main Man and its artists. Definitely worth checking out. I'm Des Shaw. And this is a Zinc Media MM Tech production. Thanks for listening. <laughs>